to be clear, whenever you do these calculations or projections, just keep in mind that none of them are going to be accurate, yeah. right? These are not guarantees of future returns. It's not a math problem where you're solving for this clearly defined X. The point of trying to think through your opportunity costs is really to lead you down a brainstorming exercise where you can create a plan of action and at least determine checkpoints in time where you can rebalance if necessary or switch up the strategy. Yeah. Whenever you start venturing into other asset classes, the lessons that you've learned with the stock market may not apply. So something like set it and forget it, which is classic index fund investor advice, doesn't neatly translate to volatile active markets like cryptocurrency or investments that require regular upkeep or service components like real estate. Yeah, yeah. And this is where things can get a little confusing, right? Welcome to the Rich and Regular Podcast presented by Success, where we explore life at the intersection of money. I'm Julian. And I'm Kirsten. And today we're talking about diversification and ways that you can invest outside of the stock market. Yes, it is early January. I presume you will be listening to this at some point in January because we're unfortunately not that ahead. Uh, But uh, it is right around that time of the year where lots of experts are making their predictions for 2022 about what the market is going to do. So some people are saying that we're due or long overdue for a correction. Some of our experts are saying that things are going to be flat. We should sort of level set and expect things to essentially be as they were the year before. And others are saying we're going to have a repeat performance. The stock market's going to go crazy. It's, you know, it's all of the above. I don't know who to believe, who to listen to. What do we do? I don't know. Yeah, nobody knows. Nobody knows. (laughs) The one thing that we do know as we enter our junior year of COVID is that there's only one thing we can be certain of, and that's uncertainty. (laughs) So That's so profound. I know. I figured we could switch things up and just venture into the world of alternative investments so we get a breath of fresh air from all of the speculation that's actually happening with the stock market. Yeah, I don't know that uh, I would say, uh, well... (laughs) <laughs> I was going to say, I'm pretty sure there's a fair bit of speculation all across the well, board. Well, yeah, that's why I use that word. Alternative because space. people who guess stocks don't consider it speculation. But the minute you start talking about crypto, then all of a sudden it's spe- speculation. Well, see, you're trying to pick a fight. <laughs> you're trying to pick a fight. Go but ahead. there's a couple of reasons why I wanted to do this. One, because diversifying your portfolio is always a good thing. Mm-hmm. And diversification goes well beyond just switching up the mix of stocks and ETFs and index funds and just kind of rebalancing your existing portfolio. It's also a diversification of asset classes. And then the second reason is that we've been getting a lot of inquiries about alternative real estate investments from farmland to REITs to larger commercial crowdfunding opportunities. So I figured this would give me a good chance to get my toes wet and research a little bit, you know, kill two birds with one stone. And then last but not least, because after two years of historic growth in real estate and stock markets, you have this new class of investors who are willing to take on some additional risks by exploring opportunities to get strong returns in other areas of their portfolio. So this episode is low-key for them. 
Yeah. No shade to everybody else when we learn something. <laughs> but Yeah, man. Diversification is one of those words that like invites controversy yes. because it's so subjective. Like, you know, going back to socks and moths, and that's not gonna be the core focus of it, but like, you know, some people will refer to diversification as your sort of like combination of stocks and bonds. Some people yeah. may call that allocation, but it's all about how do you mix and match these things and make sure that you got a little bit of everything there to maximize your exposure and all those other fancy oh. buzzwords. It's like, all right, well, when you talk about diversification, are you talking about like my income streams? Are you talking about my investment portfolio? Are you talking about, you know, like my total wealth and the proportion of that, which yeah. is home equity compared to like my investment or retirement? Talking about liquid or illiquid? We, it, it, yeah. never stops. it never stops. It never stops. It's constant. There are all these different things. Like I said, it's so subjective. There are some people who will say, you know what? I'm a big index fund investor and I'm primarily focused on the S&P 500 in and of itself. That is diverse. I've got enough sectors that are captured there. It's like it's a nonstop, super nerdy swirl mm-hmm. of conversations. And I think those who love to have those conversations can do that and wake up and do it all day. For me, I find it to be a little bit stressful and quite honestly, counterproductive. Yes. Uh, and so there are some some corners of the internet where you can do that and that's great and you love it and you know there are people that are willing to jump in and break down all of the things and analyze the former analysis uh, but <laughs> others like everyday investors and people who like or prefer more passive and laid back approaches I think let's talk about diversification outside of that little yeah. bubble I feel like diversify your portfolio is one of those pieces of advice that goes up there with Buy low, sell high. Like it's yeah. more of a slogan than it is advice. Yeah. It's like Nike's just do it, where <laughs> there was a time where that was exactly what people needed to hear. And right. they were like, heck yeah, I'm just going to do it. But now, like 20, 30 years later, you know, we got questions and Nike started to hedge <laughs> just like everybody else. Like yeah. I think they did a campaign with Naomi Osaka last year. And the slogan was like, we're not going to stop you or like you can't be stopped. It was never like a directive. It was just kind of like, we ain't going to stop you. So yeah. do what you <laughs> do. Anyway, that's a complete tangent. But whenever people suggest, you know, diversify your portfolio or that you should do that, it signals that they know something, but it's really not specific enough to take action because it doesn't tell you what things to consider when you want to diversify your portfolio or where you should even start. Yep. And I'm not even going to lie. Every time I hear the words diversify your portfolio these days, I actually think about that Chris Rock joke. I don't know if you remember. Uh -uh. He has this joke about like being like a stripper with a PhD or something like that. And like something, something to that effect where she's like giving somebody a lamp dance and looks back and asks, was like, ooh, can I help you diversify your portfolio? What? You know, <laughs> you look it up. Okay. I'm sure somebody will know or recognize that joke. Obviously, it wasn't as funny when I said it, but that's no. just kind of how jokes work. No, that's how Chris Rock works. Anyway. <laughs> So let's dive into it. Today, our goal is to address sort of all of these things um, and to sort of gear you or sort of push you into, or I should say explore. Let's just explore the world of diversifying um, investment options outside of like the stock market. And I think one of the first big areas is obviously real estate. And Mm -hmm. I think where most people think about being or becoming a real estate investor, um, 
typically we're talking about owning property, and that's for good reason, because that's typically what we see. And if you were to close your eyes and think about what a real estate investor looks like, there was a very well-crafted image of the real estate titan, most likely in a power suit with their arms folded. There's like a very specific Mm -hmm. image. It's like, well, you must be a real estate investor, (laughs) because it's like a uniform, a style. It is a whole thing. Yeah, obviously, or I shouldn't say obviously, guess what? That's not what all real estate investors look like, even though it is a very popular image that the media tends to push out there. But I say that because I think a lot of people get hung up on those images. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what deters them from even entering into real estate because I'm like, I'm not that person. and I can't be that person or, or I don't want to be that person. I was like, yeah, well, that's just what that sliver of that particular space or that image right. looks like. Uh, but I do want to talk about real estate a little bit. And there are obviously um, tons of different ways to get into it. Um, I can name three off the top of my head. Obviously, tried and true. This is what we used to be, uh, which are buy and hold investors. Uh, Second, you've got buy and sell to another investor, which is referred to as wholesaling. Basically, I secure a property, I have it on the contract, and then I'm selling that contract or the rights to that property to someone else, Mm -hmm. most likely another investor, but it could be a person who wants to live there. And then last, you've got... Another one is very popular, especially on TV, because mm-hmm. you know you get to break things and renovate things in 30 minutes or less, <laughs> um, which is buy, renovate, and flip, or what people just call flipping. Mm-hmm. Um, we've never flipped the property, but we know several people who do it, and they do pretty well at it. We know a couple of people who've tried it, and they've not done so well at it, but there are a variety it's of hard. reasons. It's a lot. It's a lot of work. We did an episode on... Um Frugal home flipping that yes. featured an article from Tarek El Musa. Yes. Um, so if you feel like looking through the catalog, you can learn about how to do frugal home flipping. But yeah, it's one of those it's one of those methods that is either like wildly successful or something that people swear they're never going to do again. Yep. Very polarizing. You either love it or hate it. Um, but anyway, those are just three off the top of my head, and I think uh, these days, obviously. There are actually a lot more ways to get invested in real estate or to start thinking about real estate investing in addition to or outside of your traditional stock and bonds. Yeah, I totally agree. Rental properties and owning a rental property, whether you flip it or hold it or sell it to another you know, investor is a couple of ways to invest in real estate, but certainly they're not the only way. And they're actually quite limiting if you continue to think that that is the only way that you can invest in real estate because the barriers to entry to even get a property and explore one of those methods are really high. You have to have enough cash to get the down payment. You have to have excellent credit, particularly if you already have a mortgage. And you have to be prepared for the cost of ownership, which, you know, could include finding and managing a tenant, any capital expenses, yep. any renovations, holding that mortgage until you sell it, yep. operating expenses and so on. Holding just, that mortgage in between uh vacancies. Yes. Yeah. So, if you do want to invest in real estate that way, you want to own a property, but maybe you live in a high cost of living area where you've been priced out or you don't want to do a lot of work to find a tenant, you can actually use a company called Roofstock. R O O F stock. And they're a platform that basically matches investors who want to buy with investors who want to sell their occupied properties without disturbing the tenant. So this is the secret sauce of Roofstock. You're buying a tenant-occupied property. And so 
all the homes are vetted and inspected and the transactions are secure through Roofstock. In fact, they've done over $4 billion worth of transactions and actually have proprietary technology that backs everything up and gives you data and insights. And it's just a really cool platform that we definitely encourage anyone who's been saving up for a huge down payment to buy in their area to look at. I actually took a look at it before we hopped on to record this, and I was finding two-bedroom homes in places like Missouri for $110,000. Like, wow, that's the cost of the home. And again, that already comes with a tenant in it. So a tenant in it. Look <laughs> at me rhyming. Hmm. So, <laughs> so if that price sounds preposterous to you, like if you live somewhere where you couldn't even get you know, a shack for $110,000, that's even more of a sign that you should go look at Roofstock and see if there might be another market where you can buy something that is already kind of ready to go, Oh yeah, you know, and get started on your real estate investment that way. And we'll link to it in the show notes. But for the people who want to invest in real estate without owning a home, you have options too. And the biggest one is crowdfunding. So crowdfunding is one of those ideas that sounded crazy or incredibly risky 10 years ago, even though it's pretty normal, not everywhere else in the world, but a lot of other places in the world. And even in small communities, there are lots of communities that band together to buy things, you know, for the kids or to put on a fall festival, things like that. So it is exactly what it sounds like. It's when a group of people pull their money together and they buy something bigger than any of them could buy usually on their own, and then they kind of split the ownership. Yeah. And in the real estate space, there are lots of different options, but the one that we recommend is called CrowdStreet. Now, the minimum investment will vary for each opportunity that's listed on CrowdStreet, but the majority of the offerings in their marketplace have a, have a minimum investment of $25,000, even though some of them may range up to $100,000. So yeah. this opportunity is more for people who already have been saving for real estate, or maybe they have excess cash in their budget. They got a raise last year and they're looking for something to do with that money. That's a good option. But if you don't have a minimum investment of $25,000, then the platform that you'll probably want to look at is called Fundrise. And it works the same way, but it has a much lower threshold for minimum investments. Their starter investment minimum is like $10. But the amount that you put in determines what investments you have access to. So at the $10 level, you're not buying a house per se. You're buying like access to their fund of houses. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen so much growth in this space over just like the last five years. I remember when I first found Roofstock, I was really excited because I was like, oh my gosh, like again, it's very similar feeling that I had when we uh, were beginning to learn about robo-advisors. Again, it was this blending of technology and sort of traditional means of investing that I thought was really, really exciting and kind of setting the tone for the future. So I'm glad you called both of those out. Um, But wait, there's more, right? We're still not done with real estate. So we spoke about some of those three core areas. We talked about crowdfunding and even sort of other intermediary ways to invest in real estate through sites like Roofstock. But we now, uh, or I should say, also have opportunities that are called REITs or REITs. It's one of the worst acronyms out there, but it's R. E-I-T. Some people call them REIT. It's like GIF. GIF, GIF. <laughs> I don't know. But REITs is what they're properly REITs, referred to. REITs, it rhymes with beats, yeah. It rhymes with beats, uh, but it's not spelled like beats. No. Any of the beats. It's R-E-I-T. It stands for Real Estate Investment Trust. And it's 
It may sound complicated, but it's really not. So um, it's I like to think of them very similar to like you would a mutual fund, except with a mutual fund, instead of like investing in a basket of different stocks with the REIT, you could be like investing in like one big commercial real estate project or like, you know, and it could be one building or it could be like a series of buildings that are spread out across a state, a region or a country. Um, but it's just you're investing in real estate or like big big real estate projects. It could be hotels. It could be office buildings. It could be apartment buildings. You name it. Like there are all of these different larger commercial real estate projects. And you as a retail investor have an opportunity to invest in them. I think what I like about REITs is that they give you a degree of intimacy, I think, that you may not necessarily have with stocks. For example, if you've invested in, uh, I'm just going to make it up, let's say a commercial project on the underdeveloped side of your town. At any point in time, you can go drive by and see how progress is going. We used to do that uh, in our old neighborhood because we would see uh, or we would read like the city's commercial plan and we knew that they'd raised funds and that they were investing all of these things and they were kind of hush-hush about what was coming or what they would consider uh, or what they would what would become what they call the anchor of this particular development, which could be like, you know, a giant hospital or something like that. And we get all excited about it and you drive by and we're like, oh my gosh, it's yeah, it's coming, it's, it's coming they along. Like the they're trees. really cleared the trees. Like, yeah. oh. And then you drive by there again. And I was like, oh my gosh, that wasn't there last time. Mm-hmm. You can't really do that with your investment portfolio. It's not like you can just show up to Vanguard's <laughs> office and be like, hey guys. Internal meeting. Just want to make sure. Real quick, I just want to know what's going on, <laughs> you know, because I'm a little concerned. Um, you're not going to pull up to, you know, Netflix and say, hey, big fan, but really. We've got a couple questions. A couple questions about the content strategy. Like, you can't really <laughs> do that unless you are asking to be escorted out of a building. Um, but with REITs and commercial real estate projects, you do have the ability to do that. And so I like that. Now, I will say this is a bit of a downside, but it's not unique to REITs. And I think you mentioned it before. They tend to have a pretty high minimum investment amounts. And so one of the companies that we recommend is Fundrise. They offer proprietary REITs. Um, but again, the minimum investment's a little high. This one's around $5,000. Is that right? Mm-hmm. $5,000 just to qualify. Uh, but again, assuming we're talking about your annual bonus or something like that, yeah. you just got a big raise and you've already maxed out your funds and you're looking to sort of play in a different space, I would say check them out. And we'll also link to that in the show notes. Yeah. So there are several other opportunities to invest in real estate. Like we mentioned earlier, farmland is another growing interest. Mm-hmm. But a lot of those other opportunities require that you're already an accredited investor, which means you're a high net worth individual or family, or that you have at least $25,000 to invest into whatever asset they're they're providing. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to dive too deep into those today because I wanted to focus on the more accessible types of alternative investments. So moving on from real estate, I want to talk a little bit about wine and fine art, Okay, which I know that sounds like a contradiction because I literally just said accessible, but piggybacking off of our last episode on technology, technology has enabled us regulars to be able to buy some fractional shares in some of the highest appreciating asset classes that have generally only been open to like the ultra rich, right? Not accredited investor rich. I mean, like royalty 
oil air, Saudi prince, like that level <laughs> of rich. Yeah. Like if you wanted to buy a piece of blue chip art, like a really nice Basquiat, you would need to be prepared to cut a check for $10 million. And yeah. a lot of us, you know, I'm looking crazy at $25,000. So yeah. <laughs> like 10 million is crazy, but through technology and through these new platforms, you can actually buy like a fraction of, you know, a piece of art. Yeah, I've been recently binge watching Succession. Uh, and so basically, if you're yes. one of those people, you're yes. a billionaire family. These are the types of uh, asset classes that were typically exclusive for people like that. But now you have these new platforms, again, thanks to technology that have enabled this for regular people. And I'm not going to lie, when I first started learning about these things and reading about them, I thought it was pretty sketchy. And that's also <laughs> because I spend a good bit of time watching and rewatching episodes of American Greed. Um, but... Or pretty much anything fraud related, but um, they're actually legit, turns out, yeah. or at least they haven't been caught. So <laughs> I, I can say that We're going to go with legit since we're recommending them. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm saying you can explore them. I'm not recommending. <laughs> That's true. I'm just saying we you can explore. We are just saying you can explore. Yeah. Hashtag Insert disclaimer. disclaimer. <laughs> exactly. Success legal team, please chime in. Yeah. <laughs> and then going back to what we were saying before about speculation and it being something that exists across all asset classes and categories, I think it's a very real thing. And I think what's unique or, um, yeah, let's just go with unique with these particular sort of categories is that like not only does speculation play a really important role here, but also like scarcity of these particular products. Um, so like if you think about like a bottle of wine, like a Lafitte Rothschild, which if you're not a wine drinker, that means absolutely nothing to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is basically one of the premier houses of Bordeaux. Bordeaux mean, being um, a region and a type of French wine, which is just the best of the best. Um, that's essentially what a lot of these things are. It's rare. There are very specific vintages. It comes from very specific places. You can't get it everywhere. And because of that scarcity and Uh this subjective opinion about how amazing uh, these particular wines are and their affiliation with something like it is, as a result, very, very valuable. Uh It kind of reminds me of um, a long time ago when I used to work at the Ritz-Carlton. And I remember looking at... Um, So just in general, for anyone who's curious, like when you think about a typical retail markup for wine, it's typically around three times. So they're uh, a restaurant or a hotel may buy a case of wine. I'm just going to make up a number at $100, but they're going to charge upwards of $300 for that particular case or bottle. But some of these more rare wines, we're talking about markups that were like significantly higher. And that was also because they were associated with a brand like the Ritz-Carlton. They know that right. people who were staying there and would come there had access and would actually appreciate that. And more than anything, it's like, you know what, let's go ahead and buy this thing now because we don't know when we're going to see it again. Exactly. And so that's not necessarily saying it's a bad investment, but it does mean that, you know, there's a... It's it's a complex, I think, highly speculative yeah. uh, style investment. And you as a regular investment or as a regular investor um, can have access to these types of investments as well. Yeah, I think like you mentioned, the drivers of value in these asset classes are far more opaque than some of the other ones. Like you can read, you know, a, a, a company's annual or quarterly performance report and understand like why here's why people might value the stock higher when it comes to wine and fine art to your point it's very subjective and it's 
in a in a bubble of who gets to decide how much things are valued. But at the same time, these asset classes are known to traditionally increase in value. Why? Because, you know, the people that own them have a stake in making sure that they stay valuable. Now, let me also say this, and, uh, you know, and I don't want to veer too left here, but like, because I don't want it to sound too sketchy. So, for example, stocks and bonds are typically rated, right? They've got agencies that will rate right. it, that will say, hey, this is rated, therefore this is considered a, a AAA or double I, I don't know much about that, but there are agencies in place yes, that sort of— regulations. Ra- right, that say, hey, these are good investments. That— could arguably be considered very subjective as well. And we know that that is a very flawed system. Same thing happens in wine. You can have a particular wine, you have agencies, you have organizations, you have people who taste the wine that review it and say, hey, this is actually some of the best wine that we've ever had. Mm -hmm. And when they get those sort of badges or designations, those are other sort of drivers that can really drive the value of that particular wine or that offering or that vintage or that house up. Same is true in the art world. If you get the blessing of insert fancy pants, you know, name <laughs> who says, hey, this is the cream of the crop, the best right. art we've ever seen. All of a sudden, it's valued significantly higher. It's highly irrational. Yeah. But like, that doesn't mean that it's not real or absolutely. won't be a good investment for We've someone. seen that with artists who have um, painted the portraits of presidents, right? That changes Correct. the trajectory of the value of their art because Correct. it's something that only... 45 people have ever done. Yep. We see it all the time. So don't knock it because it's unfamiliar. Exactly. Just putting it out there. Exactly. So in your exploration, there's actually two platforms that we want to talk about. The first is for the art people, the art nerds, the arty arts. (laughs) (laughs) Smarty arts. Smarty arts. (laughs) So it's called Masterworks, and it's a platform for investing in well-known contemporary artists like Basquiat, Cause, Banksy, and contemporary art as an asset class has appreciated about 14% annually, which is much higher, almost double than the standard conservative growth, you know, that we quote for the stock market. We usually say 7%, 10% if you're feeling like very generous. Froggy. Right. <laughs> so if you have $3,000 or more to invest and you're looking for like a solid asset class to add to your portfolio, Art might be it. They do have a wait list, though. Masterworks has a wait list. So just keep that in mind that it's not something that can happen immediately all the time. Now, I don't know how they control their wait list. You might be able to get through. Yeah. But I know, you know. a guy. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And if you're interested in wine, um, they is, there is a company called VinoVest. And I remember when I first saw them, I was actually really, really excited about this. But again, I was like, what? But as I started thinking about it, I was like, actually, wow, this is pretty, pretty cool. Um, so, um, VinoVest, uh, and huge shout out to our friend Kevin at Family Money Adventures who tagged us on a Twitter thread with yes. the co-founder of VinoVest just the other day because he was looking for personalities. But basically, if you're looking to invest in really rare and highly appreciable wines, you can do that through companies like VinoVest. Their starting level for investments is $1,000, uh, and they offer tiers up to $250,000. Oh, Lord. Yeah, so this is new to us. It's not something that we've ever done. Um, I explored it a couple of months ago. We revisited it for the purpose of having this conversation here. But so far, it looks like, you know, a pretty cool idea. I would say something to be mindful of. The fees are 
pretty high mm-hmm. compared to what we've spoken about before in terms of more traditional forms of investing. But in theory, you make up for it with returns, very similar to the masterworks um, and investing in art. Like, again, this is a very different space, right. very uh, different levels of volatility. And so if you can stomach that... Um, I felt like there was a very easy wine. I know. I'm surprised you haven't there. made the liquid I've, I've been joke. Try, I've been trying to get in there. Like, I don't know. This is the most liquid. You know what it is? Because I'm doing dry have. January. Yeah. I'm doing dry January. And so I can't even, I, I don't even want to entertain the, the wine thought. joke. I don't, I don't even want that, that joke on the tip of my tongue. Oh my That's gosh. about as good as it gets. All right. Well, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> so there are, again, many, many more ways to invest outside of the stock market. But the last one we're going to cover on this episode is my darling alternative investment cryptocurrency. (laughs) And there is debate about whether crypto is an investment or just gambling because it's so highly unregulated. But for the purposes of this podcast, we're just going to call it an investment in good faith. Mm. And if you've been listening to our podcast, you know that we dabble in the crypto space already. So our current portfolio of crypto is diversified and made up of about 60% stable coins, primarily Bitcoin and Ethereum, and then about 40% alternative coins. So alternative coins are more volatile in nature and they have smaller market cap, but the trade-off is that they have bigger rewards. Yeah. And uh, to be fair, um, or I shouldn't say fair, I should say transparent, um, in terms of how we manage our portfolio, Kirsten typically leads the crypto on the cu- cryptocurrency front. I stand by and watch. But I have been paying a little bit more attention to it um, over the last year or so, just because I've had the capacity and I think just like a newfound interest in it. And I went back to an old blog post, one of the earliest blog posts that we wrote. And it was really when uh, crypto had first sort of entered into our sphere. And I was like, is this considered an investment? And I think the ultimate uh, lesson that we landed on was like, I mean, if you want to dabble in it, you can, but I wouldn't consider it an investment. It's more so gambling because there were just far more questions then than there are now. What's really interesting is that when I went Went back to see um, what the price of Bitcoin was back when we wrote that. This had to be like maybe two, three years ago. This was two years ago. Two years ago. Almost two years ago to the date. Oh, wow. Okay. Or three years ago. So it, it was $3,700 a coin, <laughs> yeah. which I'm not going to lie. Like I have some serious, I've got FOMO on just a couple of things, but yeah. I genuinely wish I had actually been willing to part ways with a couple thousand dollars uh, to invest in crypto. Back then, if I had, we would have like at least 12x on that money right now. Uh, so I'm... I'm comfortable with my FOMO. I wear it. I, I snuggle up with my FOMO blanket at night and, and rock myself to sleep. Yeah, it's crazy because that post, we published it on January 10, 2019. Wow. And it's crazy because Bitcoin was priced at where Ethereum is right now. So you don't have to feel FOMO for long. We can easily just buy, you know, a couple of Ethereum coins and, you know, then in two years, you'll be like, Kirsten, you're the smartest Alternative investor, I know. Speculation. (laughs) But let that blog post be a reminder for you about how important it is, not for you, Julian, but for you, listener, for universal you, to change your mind when you receive new information. Like crypto is in a very different space than it was when we wrote that two years ago and even when we bought our initial coins. So the way that we are thinking about it has changed 
in accordance. Yeah, I mean, it's different than about six months ago. Exactly. So, it's, yeah. it's a moving target. All right, so we've covered a few different ways that you can invest outside of the stock market, like buying a tenant-occupied op- property through Roofstock, participating in real estate crowdfunding uh, for larger commercial deals, buying REITs. We've talked about art and wine and crypto. We've basically had like a cocktail party, you know, mocktail. dinner party. <laughs> yeah, mocktail party. Thank you. <laughs> a dinner party level of conversation topics. When we come back from our break, we're going to talk a little bit about what to consider when you're diversifying. All right. Welcome back. <laughs> so the first thing to consider is a reasonable amount of money that you want to experiment with. So some people coming up with your reasonable number is going to vary based off of like your personality type and what your risk approach is. So some people take a more cynical approach and they decide, you know, what amount of money am I okay losing? Which, you know, I understand why some people want to assume that everything could go to zero and pick a number based off that. But I personally don't know that that's incredibly helpful if you ignore decades worth of data that don't show negative returns or don't show any indication that like you could lose all of your money. Yeah. (laughs) So I would actually start with a percentage of your net worth or a percentage of your portfolio as a good goal. So we use 5% as a nice rule of thumb. So let's say you have a stock portfolio that is a hundred thousand dollars and you're ready to diversify. If you start with 5%, you might say that your goal is to build an alternative investment portfolio of $5,000 in another asset class. And you can decide whether you're going to do that over time or if you just want to shift money from your stock balance, assuming that there's not a penalty associated with doing so. Yeah, I was just going to say, or, you know, this may be a matter of like withholding contributions and then rerouting that as opposed to sort of putting it into an investment and then having to pull it out. Yeah. Yes. A lot of people assume that when we suggest to make alternative investments that they need to like go cash out their 401k. Yeah. We, we did a talk once and this lady came up and she was like, so do you think I should take out $200,000 of my 401k and put it in crypto? And we were like, no, no, that what, where did I say, when did I say that? So please like, just think about not only the amount, but how you're going to hit your goal. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad we sort of, mention that because it really brings uh, brings me to sorry and I'm really glad you mentioned that because it also brings me to the second thing which is to think about costs associated with diversifying or diversification so whenever there are anticipated higher returns there are usually going to be higher fees the two go hand in hand so you really want to make sure that you factor that into your calculations as well as opportunity costs of not just sticking with stocks or your mutual fund investments there were several investors who diverted a portion of their normal stock investments to crypto last year mm-hmm. when it was at its peak and because it's back down at the time of this recording they're like now in the red mm-hmm. and filled with the regrets so Some of these asset classes are very volatile, and it's important you look at several time horizons, whether it's one year or five years, et cetera, to fully understand like how exposed you are. Um, And again, that's not to say that you should dismiss anything that is riskier or more expensive than your go-to, let's say, run-of-the-mill investment choices, but you should be mindful of how much these investments cost at the point of purchase and how much they may cost just for holding those investments over a certain period. Of time. Yeah. And to be clear, whenever you do these 
calculations or projections, just keep in mind that none of them are going to be accurate, yeah. right? These are not guarantees of future returns. It's not a math problem where you're solving for this clearly defined X. The point of trying to think through your opportunity costs is really to lead you down a brainstorming exercise where you can create a plan of action and at least determine checkpoints in time where you can rebalance if necessary or switch up the strategy. Yeah. Whenever you start venturing into other asset classes, the lessons that you've learned with the stock market may not apply. So something like set it and forget it, which is classic index fund investor advice, doesn't neatly translate to volatile active markets like cryptocurrency or investments that require regular upkeep or service components like real estate. Yeah, yeah. And this is where things can get a little confusing, right? Because, I mean, that is either you could call it a benefit, like a benefit of those passive approaches is that you can kind of sit back and let the market do what it wants to do. But again, to each his own, right? So right. if you're going to diversify outside, let's say you are like us and very much in favor of those slower, long-term uh, investments, just recognize that as you start to venture out into these alternative forms, you might also be engaging with it a lot more frequently, checking in or yeah. having to do a lot more research than you're typically comfortable with. So all of these types of things you really want to factor in. So the last thing you want to consider if you're thinking about diversification is your exit plan. So with stocks, selling a stock is usually as simple as pushing a button. And while you might have to wait a couple of days for the funds to hit your account or for a check to be mailed, it's pretty real time. Like you decide you want to sell and then your money's there. Mm -hmm. Crypto is pretty similar unless you're using a platform that's notorious for crashing whenever there are a lot of users who request to sell all at once. But generally speaking, it is the same thing. But with some of these other asset classes, particularly with real estate, you're not always in charge of the timeline. So you can list it, but you may not get paid until somebody's ready to buy it. And depending on what market you're in and depending on, you know, the closed timelines and whether the supply chain is affected and, you know, all of these things that we're seeing in the real estate market now, that may not be instant. So always think about what you're going to do if you're ready to get out of the asset class or you need access to some of your money. Yeah. So I think the big message here is whenever you're venturing outside of what you're accustomed to, you don't really know what you're walking into. And so there are a lot of things, whether it's your day-to-day experience, your comfort levels, managing costs, expectations, all of those things are going to be a little different. So you want to leave space to be able to accommodate how you can even engage with some of those alternative investments. And that's not to discourage you from it, but we just need to make sure that you're not expecting them to feel the same way that exactly. your sort of more stable or traditional investment approaches felt. Yes, they're alternative for a reason. There it is. (laughs) All right. Final thoughts. All right. So my final thought is I really enjoyed recording this episode. Like I have long accepted the identity of being a passive investor and that investing is supposed to feel boring. But talking about these opportunities gave me a little spark, a little little thrill. Okay. And it might it might honestly just be because we spent the last episode talking about the dangers of tech illiteracy and like fraud and all the things that are, you know, challenges of tech in the pace of change. But this episode gave me hope about the possibilities. So my final thought is if you get some free time, go to our show notes page, check out the resources and See if any of them light a spark in you. Okay. 
Well, my final thought is that diversification is so, so key to a sound investment strategy. Uh, And again, that could be whether you're adding real estate, crypto, bonds, individual holdings into your existing portfolio. Any of those things could technically be considered a diversification of your particular portfolio. The goal is pretty much the same. It's to simultaneously try to find an acceptable balance between minimizing risk and maximizing your growth potential. Most importantly, though, you can make this as simple or as complex yes. as you want. It's up to you. So you can invest solely in a variety of index funds and technically have a diverse portfolio. Yeah. Or you can invest in index funds, mutual funds, real estate, and all of the other things, and that be considered diverse too. You sort of spread it out over a variety of things. I think the key is to be comfortable with your decision. And if you struggle with that, then honestly, your best bet may be to seek out an advisor, someone that you're giving the authority and the power to make those decisions on your behalf because they have more information or the ability to synthesize a wider set of information. And if you choose to do that, hopefully they're an affordable one, and hopefully they're a fiduciary. Yes. Or they could be a robot. Or a robot. (laughs) Gets you a cyborg. (laughs) Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Rich and Regular Podcast presented by Success. If you stayed on this long, I want to tell you about one of the highest returning alternative investments you can make. And that is leaving us a five-star rating and review, which is what keeps this podcast going. We will see you next week.